Hi, everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1 through 4 of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. Today, we're going to be joined for our weekly uh, update by Tony D'Onofrio, Tom Meehan, our producer, Diego Rodriguez. And we're going to take a quick trip around the world, uh, update everybody here uh, from the LPRC on our Crime Science uh, podcast network. So uh, first, we'll just touch a bit, uh, less and less you might notice, uh, on SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and the resulting COVID-19 disease. Um, Celebrities, we seem to see a lot of reporting on when celebrities or politicians or others of significant fame or infamy or contract uh, COVID-19. We see that uh, I've seen a lot of play around, you can't get what you want. In other words, that Mick Jagger um, has COVID-19. They canceled at least two shows so far. Um, We'll stand by and see how everything goes. Hopes and prayers there. Hugh Jackman, another celebrity who's been stricken by this virus. Um, here we go to uh, looking a little bit about, you know, this chronic COVID or long COVID seems to appear in a very small but significant uh, minority of those of us that become infected uh, and come down with COVID-19 disease. So um, they, they're what they're trying to do is uh, culture and look at, you know, different breakdowns of the individual, breakdowns of the actual virus that's uh, causing the infection to see if there's something going on here. I know with SARS-CoV-2 recombinant, there's been some looking at this chronic or long COVID. Uh, So I think it's still, believe it or not, early days on that to try and understand that differential breakdown. Um, It's interesting, too, on surveillance. We know that there's home testing, there's uh, government testing going on. Now, the government also is supplying free home tests. Uh, And then the idea is with these tests, uh, how can we get them uh, home tests that will look at whether um, an illness is in fact a virus. And if it is, if it is a particular um, SARS-CoV, in other words, a coronavirus, um, or is this uh, some form of influenza, or maybe what they call RSV, another respiratory virus, um, uh, or something else um, that people could more rapidly know. But we also know that there's a breakdown, too, though, uh, that the infection, daily infection rate seems to be dramatically up in 2022 at this point. You know, here we are in uh, early June, heading into mid-June uh, 2022, uh, than it was the same time period last year, dramatically up. And that's with uh, significantly less known positive tests. So we know that the virus is in heavy circulation amongst us. Um but how can what are ways that uh, better surveillance, early warning can be put in place uh, around the world and in individual communities and, and, and so on? Uh, we know that there's been a lot of wastewater surveillance. Uh, now the CDC reports that over 1,000 or just about 1,000 United States U.S. communities 
have signed up for the program are now regularly surveilling. I know, again, from early, early days here at the University of Florida with dorms, they were able to isolate uh, infections very rapidly um, as the disease was, or the viral spread was ramping up pretty quickly here in, in this area of the country. Um, so we'll, we'll stay tuned on that. But I think, you know, that, again, plays well into what, again, we're trying to do at the LPRC. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Um, but surveillance is something that's important. Detection and then surveillance. Are we knowing about and are we paying attention to the right things? Um, and what are ways that we can do that? Uh, looking at, again, going back to the seriousness that people could get from influenza and from uh, coronaviruses. So uh, obesity, particularly heavily related to the severity of COVID-19 disease, um, that seems to just be something that, that maybe uh, helps to retain, to spread or suppress immuno, immuno response. I, I'll leave that to the biological researchers to find out more about that. Smoking, heavily related, but much more related, it looks like, uh, relatively speaking, to uh, seriousness of influenza. And there was an interesting study where they compared, let's just call it roughly 150 uh, coronavirus and 150 influenza patients that had to be hospital, hospitalized uh, they saw similar seriousness of the disease. They saw similar uh, fatal uh, outcomes as well. So it, it looks like if you get really sick, you get really sick, uh, regardless of the virus. And so now they're looking at, at, you know, what what is it about the individual, about us, and maybe the particular strain of influenza or, of course, coronavirus that we've got. And there's always that interaction. It's things about the strain. It's things about the amount of that strain that we onboarded our bodies. It's things about how our body initially and, uh, and, and you know, and then successfully uh, worked on as far as detection and response. Uh, did we over respond? Did we under respond our bodies in this case? Uh, were we somewhat prepared by natural infection and or vaccines and things like that? So, uh, again, as criminologists, as socio behavioral scientists, we're very interested in differential exposure to a problem or to others that are problematic, differential exposure to the things that we do out there situationally, our crime prevention efforts, things that are different about us as far as how we may or may not notice them, see it, right? Uh, how we might uh, recognize, um, in other words, the get part, and then finally how we are likely maybe differentially to respond, that, uh, that fear response. In other words, we uh, don't launch or we retreat, um, we desist. So, uh, a lot of tie-ins. That's why we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years, it seems like now, going through and trying to understand these disease states. And and I thought that it was an interesting to see um, a little bit about, let's go back to, let's look at antivirals that they've come out with. There are now two or three available, um, but they're trying to understand how do those work and work better and how they were developed. And so I guess there are signaling pathways that the virus needs to move through our bodies. Um, and so a couple of these that uh, this is not my area of expertise, but IL-6 and IL-1 beta. So IL-6 and IL-1 beta, those signaling pathways or, or routes seem to be aiming points for some of these antivirals to shut those down or choke them down or reduce the capacity of them to transmit so that the virus may not be able to replicate and move around and spread and create more and more serious disease uh, and more and more severe response, immune response by us that can sometimes also get us in trouble. We hear about these cytokine storms and other things. So um, 
but, but just understanding that and then, again, interpreting that back over to what we all do in asset protection or loss prevention, security, crime prevention, and that is trying to understand how are people differentially exposed to threats and then how do these threats maybe communicate if there's more than one uh, online, in person, um, and so forth. And part of it, too, is another interesting study on the COVID-19 is looking at severe disease markers that they found that uh, TH17 cells, the more uh, those were present in individuals that were infected, the more likely those people were, those of us that were to uh, progress to a much more serious critical disease state, maybe even fatal. Um, so that kind of early warning <clears throat> is something that looks like if now physicians say, okay, I've got a, a, a higher than normal uh, or a critical level, whatever that they might use in their diagnosis to say, this person is much more likely, I need to get them on this, um, some sort of antiviral therapy and other supportive care more rapidly than, than maybe others of us so that they can reduce the likelihood of a, of a critical outcome. So the same thing again uh, with our LPRC research. I mentioned to you all, we're talking to at least six, maybe end up being eight uh, major retailers who have uh, active assailant or serious crime threat analysis, an individual or a team uh, program going on and um, gather from them systematically. I mentioned this before, four types of active assailant events or very critical crime events that occur at specific place maybe even specific time, specific time, but specific place. And so again, it's because the threat is uh, works there. It's an insider threat. They're energized, they're radicalized, they're activated uh, in their minds because of something that, uh, or someone there, or some things there, uh, or a process there that, that they decide to uh, start to assault. So what are the things, again, early warning, better definition, signals or signatures, might that person give out in the workplace, um, before and after the workplace, and so on, that we can leverage to our advantage. So that's a key part of this. The second type of active assailant, of course, again, is they come to that specific place because of an individual that either works there or it's a relationship for them, but they're an outsider threat, but they come to that specific place um, because of a specific individual or something about that's going on there. The third type, again, is they are going there for some other reason. It's an outsider threat. They're coming there because of maybe it's the brand and experience they had there or their loved one or somebody there or a similar store within that brand, let's say in this case. Uh, and then again, the fourth one is sort of this random, they appeared there, their car broke down, they wandered over, uh, they got off of that mass transit stop. Um, they were they were looking around and for something else, but they stumbled on this opportunity and so on. So what are the signals? What are the signatures? The physical behaviors, the utterances, uh, whether they're posted online somewhere or made in front of others, uh, corrective actions that have been made against them, uh, complaints that they've made, uh, possible employment termination there or elsewhere or similar place and so on through the five zones of influence before they get to that location as they're approaching, as they're entering that location's parking lot, zone four, uh, as they are approaching the entry point, as they pass through, as they're in the zone three, we call it the interior space uh, of whatever their target is and so on. That's kind of the systematic way that we want to look at this and you can see some of the similarities there. Uh, so stay tuned. We're excited to conduct this research. Um, we're aiming for the 27th of June uh, for our first initial tele 
um, survey that we'll be doing with the, the first group of participants. Uh, and these are all experts, mind you, so we're expecting some pretty interesting things. Body-worn cameras and other uh, potential sensor, whether it's recording or live streaming or both. Uh, what should it look like? Where do we place it? How do we best attach it? You know, how do we best keep it charged? When do we turn it on and off? Um, how do we store the data? How do we stream to whom? How do we screen things? How do we protect our data? Um, there are probably, you know, 50 to 100 logistical things we want to learn together, as well as um, uh, better deterrence and disruption and documentation. How do we use the collected video to train individuals to get better at uh, their store upkeep, at serving customers, at interpersonal relations, um, things like that, de-escalating if there's something, somebody has escalated. So uh, we got some cool research going on right there. In the virtual reality world, in that virtual environment, um, Rochelle Ross, a research associate here, um, working with Dr. Kong at the University of Florida's Digital Worlds, Dr. Ryan Sharston over at the College of Architecture, uh, grad students and others are working on a way on continually to enhance uh, a virtual environment uh, where we can, again, adjust lighting and other factors and create very realistic environments to better test and understand what we should be doing out there to comfort and uh, the green to deter the red uh, individual. Um, so stay tuned for that. Uh, by the time this podcast is released, this episode, unfortunately, the, the LPRC's annual Product Protection Working Group Summit Will have taken place, but Dr. Corey Lowe, senior research scientist here at LPRC, is facilitating the event with a series of uh, product protection working group discussions. There was voting by uh, retailers only on different solutions across the five zones affecting different uh, things, but primarily along the track to and from to and while you're on scene to steal. Um, so that's we're pretty excited about that. That's going to be occurring uh, tomorrow as we speak on the uh, 15th of June. Um, so we'll update on that later. The uh, Supply Chain Protection Summit uh, looks still to be in Philadelphia. I know that working group is trying to find the best location and the timing. They've got the content. They've got the people. Um, they're just working on the location and timing specific on that. We'll stay tuned. Um, the Violent Crime Working Group, uh, we move that to deconflict with any other summits that might be out there and to, quite frankly, make sure that our team, our research team, our operations team, that they uh, are able to, with the bandwidth we have, which is pretty slow with eight full-time people, um, to accommodate all of these events. So we've moved that, it looks like, to November 7th in Philadelphia. Uh, and so working with Cap Index, it looks like five below. Uh, to host and to uh, facilitate that event with uh, one of our research team and uh, a whole bunch of retailers that are interested in reducing violent crime. We'll get out more specific, specific information. Again, the agenda is ready for that impact conference. Heavy planning continues. We're earlier than ever. Uh, it will be held, it looks like, at the University of Florida's J. Wayne Wright's Student Union, which is a brand spanking new remodel. Uh, a rehab of this building. It's just absolutely beautiful, spectacular. We've held uh, at least eight impact conferences there. People absolutely love it. It's so different than the normal conference center, hotel complex uh, that they're used to. It's a really neat environment. We take over most of the third floor um, and you're right there in the middle of a very beautiful uh, Southeastern Conference campus, um, 56,000 students. We've got a football games before and after the event. 
Um, so uh, more to come, but that's that October 3rd through 5th. Uh, we've got some retailers now bringing as anywhere from five to 20 of their people. Uh, this conference is pretty special. Those that have ever gone, come to an impact, the way it's put on, the content that's there is all research science based. Um, so we'd love to get you there. We've got some super cool social events and more to do there than you're going to believe. So that's that October 3rd through 5th. Go to the LPRC website or operations at lpresearch.org um, and check us out, see what's going on. Uh, we appreciate all of you, all all the retailers participating in the this year's version of the National Retail Security Survey that the LPRC is conducting with the National Retail Federation and the University of Florida, um, the NRSS. Uh, here we are in something like year 34. Um, you know, Dr. Weitz and myself and Dr. Hollinger started the study back then, and and uh, really in '89 the planning began. Um, in 90 and 91s, when we finally ended up launching the project to try and do it right. And here we, it continues the largest uh, retail security survey in the world. Um, NRSS, if you're a retailer, you haven't participated, reach out to Corey, C-O-R-Y, at lpresearch.org. We'll get you a, an instrument or a questionnaire. And uh, it's not, not that heavy of a lift, but we really want complete and accurate information. It's best for everybody. Also, the LPRC ARCS program is another way for retailers, and we've now got, I'm not sure the number, it's going to be probably a couple dozen now that are contributing very detailed data to allow themselves and others to map and understand and get much better, more relevant information to add to police information, to the valuable cap index and other scores that come out. Um, so participate in the ARCS program, A-R-C-C-S. Uh, again, Corey at lpresearch.org or operations at lpresearch.org. So that's it for me. Uh, let me turn it over to Tony D'Onofrio. Tony, if you could take it away. Thank you, Reed, and uh, good update. Uh, let me start this week uh, with the latest economic forecast for Q2 2022 from Euromonitor. The global economic outlook has worsened substantially since February 2022 with lower expected growth and higher uncertainty. Global real GDP growth is expected to decline to 1.8 to 3.6% in 2022 and to 1.8 to 4% in 2023 uh, after 6% growth in 2021. Global inflation is expected to increase to 6.8 to 9% globally, and that's a big number in 2022, before declining to 3.8 to 6.3 in 2023. Global supply chain constraints have tightened substantially since the Russia invasion of Ukraine with big increases in energy and commodity prices worsened by stronger pandemic restriction in China. And uh, in the businesses that I'm involved with, I am directly feeling a lot of this that I'm talking about. For the U.S., the economic outlook has also worsened significantly since the start of the war in Ukraine. In the baseline scenario, U.S. real GDP growth is expected to increase only 1.8% to 3.6% in 22, and by just a half a percent to 2.8% in 2023. Uh, several positive factors in the U.S. economy is completely supported. Economic activities are still below the pre-pandemic forecast, uh, providing ongoing recovery potential labor market remains strong with low unemployment and employment rate uh, approaching uh, the uh, pre-COVID uh, pandemic level. 
the U.S. large oil and gas production partly offsets the negative economic effects of higher global energy prices. Although, if you look at uh, we just crossed over five dollars a gallon, I'm not sure I believe that anymore. However, negative forecasters have become more do dominant. Energy and food prices have increased sharply in the U.S. through the lower supplies from Russia and Ukraine. The rise in uncertainty and the increase in the financial market risk is reducing both domestic and global demand. Consumer confidence is now lower than the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Tighter monetary supply is expected to cause a larger increase in borrowing costs, further reducing consumer spending and business investment. Spillovers from the war in Ukraine have led to also a sharp deterioration in the Eurozone economic outlook. The Euro, Eurozone economy is extremely vulnerable to the rise in energy and food prices due to the cuts from, from the supply from Russia and Ukraine. It is also highly sensitive to rising geopolitical risks from the war and to general increase in global uncertainty and worsening global exports demand. Uh, after a fast 5.4% recovery in 2021, the Eurozone real GDP growth is expected to decline by 1.7 to 3.5% in 2022 uh, and to 0.8 to 3.2% in 2023. <clears throat> That's a rough, rough uh, start to uh, the first half of the year, and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the back and the back end of the year as really exemplified to what's happening in the stock market. Let me switch now to uh, one of my favorite topics, which is innovation and technology. On multiple platforms, I've been running a series of articles looking at how technology started and where it is today. For today's podcast, let me summarize a surprising start in current state of three major loss prevention technology. Let's start with the cash register. It might be surprising to you, but the original purpose of the cash register was to stop theft. The inventor was uh, James Reedy, a saloon keeper in Dayton, Ohio. Watching his employees in 1879 taking cash from patrons really began to wonder how they separated what belonged to the business versus what they potentially were stealing from their own profits. Having observed counters on a steamship that kept tracked on a number of propeller revolution, with the help of his brother, he patented the first cash register in 1883. John H. Patterson, a storekeeper, bought the rights to Reedy's patent for 6,500 bucks in 1884 and created what became the National Cash Register Company, or NCR. His interest in the technology was sparked by losses from one of his oldest retail clerks that was favoring um, friends by selling goods below regular prices. Patterson was also a master salesman, and I actually went to that school and it was really, really great training. And to NCR, he brought highly professional sales training, which was later adopted by IBM, that included uh, the loss prevention concepts that are still in use today. Foremost in the selling process of the cash uh, register was the theft triangle, which focused on the balance of risk, opportunity, and need rationalization. The cash register decreased the opportunity to steal 
by accurately counting transaction and the loud noise, uh, which was by design and later they added a bell that it made during a transaction, increased the risk of getting caught. In 1973, IBM developed the first computer-powered cash register. It was also the first network uh, point of sale, allowing for the consolidation of data from 128 register. Uh, later decades introduced touchscreens, customized variation in industries such as the food sector, and by early 2000, Cloud POS made an appearance. Today, you can check out on your smartphone and multiple retailer, but the ultimate evolution of the cash register was delivered by Amazon, which opened their first fully automated checkout store to the public in 2018. As of uh, this year, there are, as of right now, there's uh, over 40 Amazon Go stores now open in the United States and the United Kingdom. Let's switch to cameras. The first recorded use of CCTV technology was in Germany in 1942. The system was designed by an engineer, Walter Brook, and was set for the monitoring of uh, rockets. The first, um, and these were the rockets that were being shot, uh, especially the London, which were the first uh, long-range ballistic missile that were launched from mobile platforms during World War II. The German military used the cameras to absorb rocket launches from inside a bunker at a safe distance. Commercial use of CCTV uh, for basic live public and home, uh, and home security monitoring emerged in 1949. In 1953, CCTV systems were used during the crowning of Queen Elizabeth in the United Kingdom. Cameras also started appearing on the streets of London and New York during this time. Uh, London is now the number two most CCTV surveilled city in the world with uh, just over 1,100 cameras installed per square mile. Fast forward to uh, 72 years later to today, and in 2021, uh, the world crossed over 1 billion CCTV cameras installed worldwide. Through computer vision, the CCTV camera has become one of the most powerful data collection and solution execution solutions. And finally, let me summarize EAS and its innovation journey. EAS has its origin in 1964 when Ron Asaf, um, a store employee for Kroger working in Ohio, became frustrated with the ongoing problem of shoplifting. The idea of a technology to address it was sparked by the unsuccessful, I might say, cautious chase of a shoplifter of spirits. With the aid of his cousin, weeks later, uh, he the first cardboard mock-up of a tag that alarm was brought to the store. Fast forward to uh, two years, and the official number of inventing ES security articles to Arthur Manessy. He is the inventor crediting in creating and patenting a security device that could be attached to items for sale. Manessy's system was based on RF, a radio frequency, and became on the company called Nogo. By the end of that year, security tags were widely marketed to retail. On multiple levels, if you think about it, EAS was the first item level technology applied to consumer products. As we see the video, it was a foundational technology whose evolution to greater intelligence still continues today. Billions of EAS tags continue to be applied worldwide in many, many stores. So we have come full circle.
in this loss prevention edition of loss prevention technology as at the core of the success of EAS is again the theft triangle, first introduced with the cash register. People will steal consumer items if the opportunity is available and if they rationalize they need it. The EAS alarm at the exit through multiple variations of EAS technologies increases the risk that we, you will get caught. So that's this week. Uh, with that, let me turn it over to Tom. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Reed. Uh, today, we're taping on Tuesday, and it is Patch Tuesday. So Microsoft has released its June patches, uh, and it does address the zero-day vulnerability Phonila the, that we spoke about uh, in the past couple weeks. Uh, that really, It's a really nasty zero-day vulnerability that allows... Um, a nefarious actor to access your remote capabilities by simply just having an attached document to a file. So this is an interesting patch because it does disable some of the remote diagnostics capabilities, but I think it's a, it's a really important, important patch. And then up until recently, there wasn't a lot of conversation about when the patch was coming. So serves as a reminder, and I say it often because I think education is and awareness is about often and repetitiveness, uh, please patch your computers, do your updates. It will save you in the long run. I think it's ultra important that you're doing that. So if you're listening to this podcast, by the time you're listening to it, the patch will have been out for uh, at least two days. Go ahead and update your Microsoft Windows machines to make sure that you're safe from this zero-day vulnerability. And just as a brief reminder, what it allowed is if there was an attached uh, document or Excel document, it allowed you uh, remote code to be executed, uh, and it was kind of a, a really interesting one, but uh, basically on its own, open up uh, the, the ability to remote into a into a computer. And uh, unlike other or past vulnerabilities, this one you didn't actually have to click and open the file. You could just the way your previous use, your preview settings were there could uh, actually um, really helped. So. Uh, really help them get into your computer. So this one's a bad one. Go ahead and uh, patch. That's the easy one. Uh, there are a couple of interesting kind of ransomware uh, things out there. You may have heard of there are a couple of sites uh, for you to search whether you are part of a ransomware attack or a breach. So there is a ransomware group um AKA black cat is what they're called that actually um, created a method that you could uh, search to see if you were your encrypted data or your data was uh, your corporate data was stolen. So there's this element of ransomware where someone encrypts your file. And then additionally, as I always say, don't call a cyber incident one specific thing because it generally molds into other things. So a breach isn't a breach, uh, ransomware isn't a ransomware, there's usually a crossover. So a lot of the more prolific ransomware attacks involve data theft. So this is a really interesting kind of spin on the blackmail side of it. So yeah, you might get an email. Uh, actually, I've seen a couple of real emails where this, where the headline is, your personal data has been stolen and you will be published. And then it goes, the, the body of the email, I'm actually reading a real email is, good day. If you receive this letter, you are a customer, buyer, partner, or employee of blank company, which is at this web address. Perhaps you bought something there and left your personal data, such as phone, email address, and credentials. And the email goes on. 
And basically what the ransomware folks are doing is they're taking this to the next level and attacking individuals that are a part of this to say, if you don't make a payment, we'll go ahead and release your specific information. So as we talk about the dangers of ransomware, it is evolving. It's no longer about just encrypting the file and stopping people to get it. It's now getting into a blackmail level. And uh, there are groups like Black Cat that have actually created a database so that you can go after they send that email and validate that you they actually have your information. Um, we talk all the time about the evolution of kind of crime and cyber instance, incidences and what we're seeing today in the cyber space, which isn't much different than the physical space, is that you have a nexus occurring where criminals are combining uh, different types of nefarious acts to monetize them. So a, a traditional ransomware attack, which was to lock your files and get you to pay a ransom to unlock them, has now morphed into uh, a continuous of stealing data and then going to the end user level. So if you think about a, a ransomware breach, and I'll just use um, anecdotal information, there's a ransomware that occurs that there is a breach component of it. Maybe you know that, maybe you don't. But it is someone that has millions, 10 million records that allows them, if they have emails, to go ahead and send 10 million opportunities to get information. And the unfortunate part about a lot of these type of attacks is what we've seen in the past is that these are not bluffs. These are attacks where there's full intention to execute what they say. There's also full intention to not execute uh, if if you don't, uh, if you do pay them. And so there was some interesting studies about ransomware, specifically about 60% of the people that pay the ransomware get their files opened up. Um, so it still leaves, you know, that, that four to 10 that don't. So there is no easy answer here, but we're going to continue to watch it. I, I, I see a lot of, um, uh, a lot of black hat activity in Australia right now. Um, but there are basically ransomware attacks happening, at about the rate of every six to 11 seconds globally. So we're all susceptible to it. And it reminds me, I mean, it starts me to remind you of making sure that you're patching and doing all the things that we talk about on each of the calls. I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about kind of just uh, general technology and what we're seeing out there. Um, there was some interesting information that was released on uh, Google released kind of what their viewership was on YouTube. And I just want to throw this out there for context sake that a 1.5 billion people watch YouTube shorts monthly. So the short videos on, on YouTube. Uh, and if you're wondering kind of what that means to TikTok, because we've heard so much about TikTok in September um, of last year, there was about a billion monthly active users on TikTok. I think it's important to note that they're talking about active users. It doesn't really talk to what they're watching where YouTube is actually... She's saying there's a 1.5 billion people watching videos. Meta and Facebook, uh, for both Facebook Reels and Instagram, they're not releasing that data. But when we talk about the magnitude of social media, uh, I just want everybody to take a step back and think of 1.5 billion people. 1.5 billion people watch YouTube, and there's 330 some odd million people in the United States. So the sheer volume of video, and for all of us. Here listening, we know that there's a lot of great content um, to learn on YouTube, but there's also a lot of content of, of how to defeat and defraud. So YouTube is a great resource to learn what um, the red shoppers are talking about, and it's also a great research to read to learn 
uh, different ways to prevent both cyber and physical uh, pieces of it. I also would say that as someone that's heavily involved in social media, uh, TikTok is, is also a really great place, although it's not as necessarily easy to search to see what is being said. So I think it's it's very interesting stuff. This week, uh, kind of uh, the last two weeks really, have been very volatile in the crypto uh, market. And so Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all of the, really all of the cryptocurrencies have suffered some significant losses. One of the things that we're starting to see is that uh, there's a new trend that crypto is starting to follow the normal marketing conditions. This is somewhat of a logical assumption if you looked at it, but it was not necessarily intended to be the case. Uh, there's something called stable coins. Uh, stable coins aren't backed by fiat currencies, but they use different algorithms to help keep stability. They also crashed, so it kind of shows um, the volatility overall. And to kind of further move on, there are a couple networks that are lenders based on cryptocurrency that have actually stopped funding because of this. So Celsius is one of the larger cryptocurrency banks where, uh, to oversimplify this, you put deposit of money and you, you have a high interest yield based on cryptocurrency um, exchange. They've actually paused all withdrawals and, and transfers and swaps because of the extreme market condition. So when we talked about volatility and how these are not traditional banks and this is not uh, FDIC insured, we're starting to see some of that. And this is a very interesting time for crypto because at the same time, we're seeing retailers announcing that on their online channel that they'll accept Bitcoin as a payment. Um, as someone that it, it, you know spends a ton of time in the financial market, I'm not suggesting that you've run away from cryptocurrency much. I'm not here to give, and none of us are here to give advice on it. It's just simply reporting that what is occurring today. In uh, more financial news, by the time this pub, uh, podcast is published, we should see another Fed uh, rate hike. Um, it's interesting. There was a Wall Street Journal article that said that there was a 50% likelihood that it would be a half a percent versus three quarters of a percent. Uh, again, uh, I think we'll see it on the higher side, closer to three quarters of a percent. But that 50-50% is what the Wall Street Journal is projecting. So by the time you're listening to this, we'll probably already have heard about that. Um, so just something to keep around. Um, back, just switching gears a little bit back to uh, YouTube is YouTube's actually announced a new feature. Uh, called corrections, which will let a creator um, add info cards to the top right of a video at a specific time stamp. So I think this is a great, uh, you know, great addition for folks in our space that are doing videos and need to add things later on. I know that I do a lot of YouTube videos and see a lot. And you, as you do these videos, you might need to add some context. And this is a good way to add a note later and allow it actually to expand. And then last, but certainly not least, um, talking just a lot about automation and things out there, the National Highway Tra uh, Traffic Safety Administration released data on the number of crashes involving autonomous vehicles uh, and level two vehicles with advanced driver assist systems. We don't have time today to talk about level one, two, three, four, and five, but basically the levels associated with how much of the autonomous is happening. Today, most of autonomous vehicles that you're, you're seeing are driver assisted. Anything that's commercially available is certainly driver assisted. Uh, fully autonomous is tested in a very small 
fronts. But this is a really interesting. It's the first time this report was out. You may have seen it. It was all over the news. But it takes data from July of 2021 through May of 2022. And what it, what it shows is there's a total of 392 crashes reported. Uh, six that resulted in serious injury, five that resulted in fatalities, and uh, only 25% of the crashes reported included information about the severity. So it's important to note that this data is somewhat flawed because we didn't get all of the information in it. And this is just factual data, right? Tesla accounts for 69% of those reports, followed by Honda with 23%, followed by Subaru with 2.5%. It's really important to note that this report lacks a lot of detail on the number of vehicles with these systems manufactured in operation overall uh, the use of them. So while I think this is interesting data and we're going to continue to watch it uh, because it's about automation and we are starting to see in the LPRC labs some similar technologies used, obviously not to drive a car, but I think it's an, it's indicative to follow kind of the technology stream. This uses LiDAR and a radar technology. We, we know that there are solutions in the LPRC. What will that mean for those solutions? I also think it's important to note that there is no, again, and I'll, I'll be a little repetitive here, there is no real supported data to show the number of vehicles in use. So we don't know if the sample size for Tesla was larger, and that's why the percentage is more. Uh, we can make anecdotal results. But one of the, the great things here is that we're starting to see this data about AI about machine learning in in the, the area where really a lot of these um, imaging autonomous and anti-collision uh, technologies started and primarily their their image-based sensors their time of flight whether it be in the form of infrared lidar uh, other laser based they do they are also in a radar based as well as a computer vision with actual um, what we would probably consider traditional video based but I felt that it was pertinent to our group because we are we use so much video and so many image sensors. So I'll continue to monitor that because I do actually think this will affect the implementation of some of these technologies as we're starting to get standardizations. My belief is that this data being uh, shared will actually improve uh, some of the other use cases because the algorithms will have to get better. Um, and some of the same dete people detection algorithms that are used in autonomous vehicles are used in computer vision today in retail. So there is crossover with a lot of this technology and that's really why I thought to, to mention it. Also, it's important to note specific to LiDAR that most modern cell phones have LiDAR sensors in them. So these sensors are becoming much more widely available and will continue to, to play a role in what we do here at the LPRC. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Reed. All right, thanks so much to both of you, Tom and Tony, to Diego, our producer. Um, amazing, amazing information. Uh, we want, again, like to ask you all to contribute, ask us any questions, make any comments or suggestions at operations at lpresearch.org around this, the Crime Science Podcast. Please let others know. Please rate us. You hear that all the time. We're in, we're in a, I don't even know, a dozen different podcast platforms, but we really appreciate any rating, any comments, uh, things that you all can help us to make bigger and better uh, more useful podcasts for you all. Um, so uh, everybody stay safe, stay in touch, and have a great one. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast, presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more Crime Science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. 
The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 